today, you and I are going to continue along here in the Sermon on the Mount where we find Jesus explaining the root cause of sexual sin. And we're going to find today that it is rooted in the sinful desires of the human mind. Now, today we're going to find Jesus using a form of overstatement called exaggeration in order to impress upon our minds the need to control our thought lives so that we would not be overcome by lust. Now, there's two important facts we're going to be learning here today. Number one, we're going to learn that we must, as believers, acquiesce to the categories of sexual, excuse me, human sexuality that God has given, namely, that human sexuality is to be confined between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. That's number one. But number two, we're also going to learn that the battle against lust is a battle for the mind, that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ must be those who are focused on things above rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin here and now. Now, today I want to begin here in Matthew 5, 27 through 28. I want to remind you, to pull up my pointer here, I want to remind you that Matthew is being de- depicting Jesus as the new and eternal lawgiver by doing two things for us. Number one, he shows us that Jesus is God who meets his people once again up on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, just as God met the people of Israel up on a mountain and gave the law to them. Second, we're going to see Matthew record Jesus using that phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And that shows us once again that Jesus is the eternal lawgiver forevermore. And so that's where we pick it up here. Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here what you see in red is taken right from Exodus 20, verse 14. That is the seventh commandment. Last time in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at Jesus addressing the sixth commandment. Now, while this commandment specifically prohibited a man from taking another man's wife for sexual relationship, we also know that in the time of Moses, this passage begins to be used for sexual immorality in general. And so what I want to do is lay out biblically God's design for human sexuality. I want to begin in Genesis 1. So I'm going to kind of take a pause here and kind of build a biblical worldview on human sexuality. And it begins with the idea that we have men and women. We only have two genders. Now, I say that because that is a contrary idea that we see in our culture today where some Marxist in the elite group in our country claim that there are many genders and they have all sorts of acronyms, but that's not true. Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female. So that's the category. Now, I think implicitly in the Bible, God created men and women for desire for one another. And I think that's implied in Genesis 1.28, where he says, be fruitful and multiply, and there really isn't a problem with that. That goes along swimmingly. However, that can be distorted, this natural desire that a man has for a woman or a woman for a man due to sin. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 1, 25 through 27. Because he says people worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's forever praised, God gave them over to degrading lust so that women would desire one another and men would desire one another. That is sin before God. Now, we have the category then from Genesis 1, 27 through 28, that human sexuality is male-female. But when we get to Genesis chapter 2, we see it's particularly one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. Genesis 2.24, Moses recorded, he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. So biblical human sexuality is one man, one woman within the confines of marriage. And anything outside of that is rebellion against God. Now, does God list these commands because he is some sort of cosmic ogre who is mean-spirited and he just wants to quench the fun of humanity? Well, no, he does not. 
he limits the sexual union between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage because it is designed to protect human beings who are made in the image of God. There is nothing more damaging to a person made in the image of God than having their spouse cheat on them. To say that I've seen all that you are in mind and spirit and even physically, and I'm rejecting you for someone else. The damage that is done to another spouse is incalculable. And what's more, it's designed to protect the children who are always affected by the sexual sin of their parents. And so to protect the man, the woman, and the children, one man, one woman, within the confines of marriage. We also know that God uses human sexuality to give him glory. There is something about both male and female that gives glory to God. And so that's why we have the rules that we have from the Lord. Now, what I want to do is continue on here in verse 28, and I want to show you that Jesus is going to move from merely the physical to that of the ultimate root cause behind adultery and sexual sin, which is a battle in the mind. Notice he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks, notice the term in the box there, looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the term looks that you see in the box there, that is a present active participle of blepo. Blepo simply means to see or to look. Now, let me explain why I think that is significant. The present tense probably accentuates this is an ongoing issue. It's not a momentary glance. Now, why do I say that? Well, because men and women were given a God-given desire for one another, you can't help but sometimes notice someone of the opposite sex. But what's being denoted here, I think, is instructive, that the idea of continuously looking is one way of rendering this, is the idea of focus, contemplation, and a continuous desire and lust for this person who is not their spouse. That's the idea that Jesus is conveying. Let me try to explain. I think the best way to explain this is an analogy that Luther actually used. Luther had a wonderful analogy when he tried to explain what it looks like to lust. He said, you know, as a human being, you cannot keep the birds from orbiting over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. I I like that. The idea is, yes, you can't help but maybe glance and you notice an attractive person, the opposite sex, but it's what you do from there is important. It's the idea of dwelling upon someone who is not your spouse where we get ourselves in trouble. Some years ago, there was a godly professor that I had, and he talked about how he was in a checkout counter at a grocery store, and he had a couple young boys with him, and these boys, of course, are attracted to what's in the magazine rack. And so on the magazine rack, there were scantily clad women, and he noticed that his boys noticed. And he looked at them, and he said, the first look is for free, but it's the second that will cost you. And the point that he was making is don't dwell on that. Don't dwell on someone outside of your wife because at the end of the day, if we're overcome by lust, it will cost us. And so here Jesus shows us that the ultimate battle is not merely a physical one, but ultimately it's a battle for the heart. Remember, the Hebrews use the term heart for the center of our thought life, our emotions, our will, and our intellect. And so the battle against lust, the battle against sexual sin is a battle in the mind. And so this is why, as we come to the next two verses, Jesus is going to be using a form of overstatement called exaggeration. Why? Because he wants us to see just how important it is that we would harness our thought life so as not to be overcome by lust. Notice he continues. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And dear ones, I want you to notice, first of all, Jesus talks about taking your right eye, and if it causes you to stumble, we'll talk about what that is, you're to tear it out. I notice he talks about the right hand. If that causes you to stumble, you're to cut it off. Clearly, Jesus is using a form of overstatement 
that we call exaggeration. Let me explain the difference between hyperbole and exaggeration, at least as I understand it. I think I'm right. Hyperbole is overstatement, but it's technically impossible. So if I said to you, hey, yesterday I was running 1,000 miles per hour to get everything done, you would know that that's hyperbole because technically a human being cannot run 1,000 miles per hour, especially me. I pull a hamstring past 15 miles per hour probably. So you know that that's technically impossible. So that's hyperbole. But notice here, this is exaggeration. Why? Because plucking out your right eye or cutting off your right hand, that is technically possible. However, it is not advisable, and it is obvious overstatement. What is the point for Jesus using that exaggeration? What he is saying to us is that we better take our thought life so seriously captive and not allow it to linger in lust so as not to stumble. Notice the term stumble is reiterated here twice. It's used. The term stumble there, scandalizo, it's where we get our term for scandal or scandalized. Here, I do like the rendering stumble because I think the metaphor that Jesus has in his mind is one in which a person is on the path to salvation, but something causes them to stumble off of it. Now, do not think from that Jesus is teaching that believers can lose their salvation. He is not. But the idea is this person who stumbles unto damnation would be one who never believed. Remember, faith and obedience are always tied together. And someone who is characterized by lust their entire life, they never overcome, they never repent, is characterized as the unbeliever who perishes. In fact, notice the stumbling isn't just into a bad day here and now, but it's ultimately whole body into hell. The term hell there is the term Gehenna. It is used elsewhere, like in Revelation 20:15 at the white throne judgment. Every single unbeliever that is outside of Jesus Christ will be thrown into this lake of fire. That's why the gospel is so serious. All right, so notice, in fact, we have the whole body will be thrown into hell. And that's a good reminder that, yes, there are going to be two resurrections, one for the godly, where you and I will be raised up for the specific purpose of enjoying God and his kingdom forever. But there's also going to be a resurrection of the unbeliever, specifically so that they would be thrown into the lake of fire and be tormented forevermore. And that's why that is called the second death. Death is ultimately separation from God. Now, again, the grand point that Jesus is making here then is we better take great care to control our thought life lest we stumble off the path of salvation, that we be overcome by lust. And so as we approach the rest of the New Testament, this is why the Apostle Paul will say things like in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, it is better to marry than to burn with lust. God created the union of marriage between one man and one woman as the safe space in which human sexuality can be practiced. Now, let me address those who may be single here. I want to address single, singleness, if that's a term, or singlehood. I'm just making up terms as I go. But the idea of being single, I want you to see that according to Jesus, the ability to not be overcome by sexual desire is actually a gift given by God. And I want you to see that for yourselves. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. Matthew 19, verses 9 through 12. Please turn your Bibles there. Matthew 19, verses 9 through 12. I'll give you a moment to turn to it. And by the way, as you're turning again, Matthew 19, verses 9 through 12, what you'll find here is Jesus explains how divorce is something that is abhorrent to God and, in fact, leads to adultery and being guilty before God unless your spouse is cheating on you in a sexual way. And because of this, the disciples catch wind, well, maybe it would be easier not to be married at all. After all, you would have less culpability upon you. Well, listen to what Jesus says to that. So we pick it up, Matthew 19, 9. Jesus is speaking to them. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
Now, stop there. The disciples are going to catch wind of this and say, well, maybe we shouldn't get married. Notice in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Now, listen to what Jesus says to this. Verse 11 says, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Does everyone see that phrase, it has been given? To whom it has been given, that is a divine passive, meaning that God is the one who gives the ability for some people not to be overcome by lust, and therefore those that don't have to and should not pursue or don't need to pursue marriage. That's the idea. Now, he gives an extreme example. Notice in verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs, that's a castrated man, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this. Let him accept it. Notice being single isn't for everyone. And I think implied in this is the ability to not be overcome by lust is something that is God-given. Marriage, on the other hand, between one man and one woman is a safe space in which human sexuality can be expressed. It protects the parents, it protects the children, and it brings glory to God. What we learn here today from Jesus is that the ultimate battle not to transgress those boundaries is a battle for the mind. If you and I are convinced of the king and the kingdom to come, we will live for that. But if we start forgetting about those promises, we can start living for here and now and be overcome by lust. Brothers and sisters, the battle against sexual sin, the battle against lust, is a battle for the mind. Now, I want to come to some applications with you here this morning. I have three of them. Number one, we must affirm sexuality within the protective parameters God has given. Now, as I say this, I am not claiming that our God demands that his followers be prudes. After all, he's the one who created sex. He's the one who designed it but rather that you and I as believers would submit to the parameters that he has given. Think about in the very garden, God gave parameters. He said, you can eat of all the trees except just one. And what did Adam and Eve do with that? Well, they thought it was outrageous. They transgressed the boundary. Transgressing God's boundaries, as we will see, is rebelling against him. Number two, we must know that severe treatment of the body cannot spare us from sinful desires. My concern today, one of the concerns, is that we would take Jesus' exaggeration in plucking out your eye or chopping off your hand, and that we would take him literally. Why? Because if we do, we're going to have a contradiction in the scriptures. Think about Jesus here. If he is really saying we're taking him literally, that you can severely treat your body, pluck out your eye or chop off your hand, therefore you won't sin. We're going to find the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.23 that if you severely treat your body, pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, it won't prevent sin. So severe treatment of the body cannot prevent sin and not prevent sin at the same time in the same relationship. We would have ourselves a contradiction, and you know what? There are no contradictions in the Bible. So if we have an apparent one, guess what? That means we've made an error. We've misunderstood Jesus, and we've taken his exaggeration literally. We must not do it. Because we're also muting the point of the exaggeration, which is to control our thought life. And that leads me to number three. We must take seriously the call by Christ to guard our thought life, to be those who flee from immorality and those who focus our minds on things above rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, today, inherent in Jesus' teaching on sexual immorality and guarding us from lust is a biblical worldview on sexuality, again, in which you and I are to acquiesce to God's categories or parameters on human sexuality. And again, there's two categories, male, female, Genesis 127. Second category, one male, one female within the confines of marriage. Now, what I want you to see is that's not something just taught in the Old Covenant, but this is reiterated by Christ, who is our eternal lawgiver. And I want you to see that in Matthew 19. Now, before I put that up, 
I want to give you a little context here. Matthew 19, 3, the verse that precedes the ones I'm going to put up on the screen, Jesus is asked a question by the Pharisees. And the question is, can a man divorce his wife for any old reason? Now, let me explain what was behind that question. In Jesus' day, there were two rabbinical schools of thought on divorce. The first school was the school of Hillel. This was a rabbinical teacher who said a man could divorce his wife for any old reason. In fact, if a wife would just singe the toast in a way that the husband didn't like, that was grounds for divorce right there. Whatever the Jews ate, I don't know, the the porridge wasn't made right. That was the school of Hillel. But the school of Shammai, another rabbinical teacher, he said, no, the only reason that's legitimate for divorce is for sexual immorality. We're going to find Jesus siding with the school of Shammai here. So let's put up Matthew. Oops, I can't get it to come up. Matthew 19, there we go, verses 4 through 5. So this is Jesus answering the Pharisees. It says, and he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Again, dear ones, this is the same biblical worldview that we have from the Old Testament. Notice, first of all, Jesus borrows in verse 4 from Genesis 1.27, male, female. Male, female. Not LGBTQ and on and on and on. Not multiple pronouns, multiple genders. Male, female. Notice the second category. Jesus reiterates Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and he cleaves to his one wife and they become what? They become one flesh. So I want you to realize that if we don't adhere to these categories, ultimately, people are taking issue not with Eric Daumer or any other biblical teacher, but with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Holy One of Israel, the one who spoke and the universe came into being, the one who was bodily raised from the dead, the one who walked upon water and who did miraculous deeds, they're having an issue with him. So dear brothers and sisters, what we have to learn is that as believers, those who follow Christ, we have to hold to and acquiesce to the parameters that God has given. If we aren't the people who do it, where will those people come from? No one else is going to do that in all of the planet. Now, what I want to do is show you in just what a dim view that God takes those who transgress his boundaries. I want to show you how transgressing God's boundaries, whether they be sexual boundaries or otherwise for that matter, is rebellion against God. I want to show you that from Jude 6 through 7. In fact, if you will, turn your Bibles to Jude 4. Remember in Jude, there's only one chapter. So if I say Jude 4, that means Jude 1 verse 4. So please turn your Bibles there. Now, in Jude 1.4, I want to set the context for you. Remember, Jude is dealing with false teachers who are transgressing God's boundaries, both in their sexual sin, but also by attempting to manipulate the angelic realm, which they don't have the authority to do. They're humans. So they're transgressing boundaries in two ways. So notice what Jude says of them in Jude 4. Notice Jude says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice the term licentiousness there, aselgia, the term that's being used, is a term that literally, according to Lonida, one of the lexicons that I use, it refers to this as a collapse of moral restraint, a complete collapse of moral restraint, especially in regards to sexual matters. So the false teachers, what they were claiming is, hey, this Lord Jesus isn't coming back. We can live any way we want. That's what they were claiming. Now, I want you to think about the example that Jude gives. If you notice in your Bible, you don't have to read it all, but notice in the very next verse, verse 5, Jude uses the example of Israel's rebellion And their lack of faith was the ultimate reason for that rebellion as an example of not to follow in their footsteps. But then, notice on the screen, in verses 6 through 7, Jude goes on to use 
the boundary crossing of the angels in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what not to do. Jude 6 and 7, Jude continued, he said, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, dear ones, I want you to first notice here on the screen the angels that Jude is referring to, I think certainly are the angels from Genesis chapter 6. Now, what was the problem with them? Well, notice he says that they did not keep their own domain and they abandoned their proper abode. What is the proper domain or abode for the angels? It's the angelic realm. It's the divine council. But they left that, they became men, and they impregnated women. And so what Jude is saying is that they transgressed boundaries that God has given. And to prove that, yes, indeed, this was a sexual sin, notice the connection between what the angels did and what Sodom and Gomorrah did. Notice in verse 7, he says, oops, I can't get my pointer. There we go. Aha, my underline. Does everyone see it? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So there is a connection between what the angels did and what Sodom and Gomorrah did. Now, precisely what is that connection? It's boundary crossing. Notice he says, they in the same way as these indulged in great immorality. The term for immorality there, ek pornuo, I think it may be a participle form of that if I remember. That's where we get the term for pornography, but there's a prefix added to it. It's great sexual immorality. Why? Because in Sodom and Gomorrah, they got rid of male-female. Men went after men and women went after women. They transgressed God's boundaries. So the idea is the boundaries that God created, the angels transgressed theirs by going from the angelic realm to mankind. In Sodom and Gomorrah, they transgressed God's boundaries by rejecting the God-given attraction, men for women and women for men, to same sex. And in so doing, what are they all going to inherit? Yes, the angels are held the fallen ones here, temporarily in eternal bonds, but everyone who rebels against God is heading for eternal fire. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said today in Matthew chapter 5? Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you and I have to be those who acquiesce to the boundaries of God. That we say, yes, one man, one woman within the confines of marriage, those are our boundaries given to us by God himself. Let me tell you a story where the boundaries became important in my life. Years ago when I was an airline pilot, there was a particular homosexual flight attendant that most people kind of shied away from. And I'm not exactly sure. The the person was a decent employee, but no one would ever typically want to have dinner with this person, perhaps just because it um, maybe they thought it brought shame upon them. But I remember one time we had some time off. in in the airport, and I said, you know what, I will have dinner with this person. So we're waiting three hours for our next flight to go out. We're done flying for three hours. And I remember sitting down at the table. It was that TGIF Fridays, if I remember, at the airport. And the waitress had just brought the water out. But before the food, we'd even ordered it. This flight attendant looked at me and said, what you think, you think what I do is sinful, don't you? Now, why did they say that? Well, they had heard me talk about the Bible a time or two but I just couldn't believe the boldness of this person just to write out. First thing, you believe what I do is sinful, don't you, Eric? And I kind of inside gulped a little bit to say, well, this is going to be a hard one. But God gave grace. And I said, I do. I do believe what you do is sinful, but let me share this with you. I said, all the sins that I've committed in my life would send me to hell every bit as much as your sin. The difference between me and you is that I repented And I turned to the lordship of Jesus Christ and I acquiesced to his boundaries. You have to do the same. And if you will do the same, you will find the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. It's not just for me, it's for you too. Well, what's very interesting is you would expect there would be some tension in the months and years that we flew together. There never was. Do you know why? 
because he knew that I, as an evangelical, only wanted good things for him. I wasn't out trying to get him. And I want to say that to anyone who may be listening. If you're a homosexual, we love you at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, but we want you to come to Christ on his terms and bow your knee to God in his categories and be spared from the wrath of God just as we were the moment we believed. Okay, now let me go on to my second point here. And that is today we saw Jesus using exaggeration. Again, that's a form of overstatement. And I want to prove to you that he is using exaggeration. In fact, if we take the exaggeration and we take it literally, we're going to be doing grave harm to the text and misunderstanding what he said. If you and I pluck out our eye or somehow else mutilate ourselves, that is not going to remedy the problem with sin. Bob DeWay has done great work in this regard over the years, showing us that the desert fathers who went into the wilderness, the quote-unquote desert fathers, who went into the wilderness and would self-flagellate themselves and tie themselves to like a marble wall to sap the body heat from themselves, that wasn't a godly act. It was a sinful one. You see, some people say, well, you know what? Jesus went into the wilderness. I'm going to do the same to kind of be beat up and become more holy. The problem with doing that, which Jesus did in that regard, is when Jesus went into the wilderness, he didn't have a sin nature, you and I do. And the problem is, when you and I self-flagellate ourselves or severely treat our body, it doesn't cure where the sin ultimately comes from, because the battle's here. The battle's in the mind. And so you can have no digits or hands or legs at all and be completely blind, and yet you can still lust and be overcome by sin. Why? Because the battle's in the mind. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches us here in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Listen carefully to what Paul says here. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, the first thing I want to unpack is notice in verse 20, Paul makes the point, if you've died with Christ. What does he mean, if you've died with Christ? Well, what that means is that we are positionally with him. The moment you believed, you're with Christ. And again, I talked about some weeks ago how baptism symbolizes that very fact. But notice his point is more than that. He says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles, what are the elementary principles? The term stoichion there is a reference to the demonic realm. So literally what Paul is saying is, if you died with Christ to the demonic realm, why are you submitting to their doctrines? Why are you buying in? You're dead to them. You're with Christ. Why are you submitting to their doctrines? What are their doctrines? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Don't do this. Don't do that. Why don't you beat yourself a little bit? In fact, notice he adds the severe treatment of the body. Why is that a problem? Because it won't do one lick of good to cure your sin nature. The battle against our sinful lusts is a battle in the mind. No, the severe treatment of the body is of no avail or value against fleshly indulgence. It will not in any way get rid of sin. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches. So clearly then, Jesus cannot be asking us to literally mutilate ourselves. Why? Because it won't do any good. So what was the point then necessarily that Jesus must be making in Matthew 5, that you and I would take our thought life so seriously that you and I would not dwell on the fleeting pleasures of sin sexually so as not to stumble off of the path of salvation. We are to battle in our minds to remain pure. That was the point that Jesus was driving at. And so this is why the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament requires believers to exercise control in our thought life, to not be overtaken by lust. In fact, 
We see this in Proverbs. Listen to what Solomon wrote here, Proverbs 6, 25 through 27. And by the way, as I read this, he's addressing a man's relationship with an adulteress. An adulteress would be a married woman who's trying to flatter someone else other than her husband to seduce him. So notice what the writer of Proverbs says here, Proverbs 6, 25 through 27. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Now, I want to start here in verse 25. Notice it says, do not desire. The term desire there, kaham, is literally the idea of covet or lusting. Do not lust for her beauty. And I think this is roughly synonymous with the next line, nor let her capture you. This is the man, this is man-centered. This is the woman-centric part of the phrase. So the idea is to be captured by the adulteress means that you are, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, our passage, continuously looking, that you have been captured by her beauty and you are taken to the point where your lust has overcome your thought life. I think that that's what's being described. Now, as we come to verse 26, verse 26 is actually one of the most difficult Hebrew passages to understand from the Hebrew to the English and all of the Bible. Let me read to you a paraphrase given by Dwayne Garrett, a great Hebrew scholar. Listen to how he renders this and just kind of follow along. You'll see a great difference between our English versions and probably how it should be understood. Dwayne Garrett said it this way, verse 26, he says, quote, although the price of a prostitute may be as much as a loaf of bread, another man's wife hunts the precious life. Let me say that again. He says it this way, although the price of a prostitute may be as much as a loaf of bread, another man's wife hunts the precious life. Now, what is Solomon doing here? He's not vindicating the idea of going after the harlot or the prostitute, and somehow that would be moral but simply pointing out that even the prostitute, if one does that, it's not doing the same damage as going after another man's wife, hurting not only that man, the family, etc., but also being culpable to that man. That man may kill you. (laughs) He may shoot you with a bow and arrow in the day or hack you or shoot you with a gun here and now. But what's more, notice in verse 27, the rhetorical question, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? What is the obvious answer to that rhetorical question? No. And whether that judgment or the, ex- the experiences of judgment happen here and now, we know they certainly will in eternity. That those who transgress God's boundaries will be those who perish. Now, does that mean that there's no forgiveness? No, there is. And I want you to think about how King David dropped the ball in this regard. He lost the battle in his mind, and yet he's a believer, and he will be in the kingdom. Remember, King David lusted after Bathsheba. He continuously gazed to the point that he was overcome, so much so that he sent her husband Uriah to the the front to be killed in battle. So David was a murderer and adulterer. And yet he was forgiven. But didn't he experience consequences here and now? Well, he sure did. Again, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes and not be burned? No. We will suffer the consequences for this kind of sin. It always happens. All right, now, let me move on here to the next slide. I want to show you from the New Testament that, again, Jesus... Remember, he used exaggeration in Matthew 5 that we learned today. I'm going to show you that later on in Matthew 18, he uses the same exaggeration with the eye and other parts of the body. Notice what he says. Or I'm sorry, it's your hand and your foot here. Matthew 18, 8 through 9, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, dear ones, again, notice 
If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, what do you do? You're to cut it off. But we just learned from Colossians 2 that self-abuse is of no avail against fleshly indulgence. So again, what Jesus is using is overstatement, exaggeration, to get our attention, to say you and I have to be those who control our thought life. We are to be those who don't let our minds, as David's did, dwell on passions and immorality. That's what he's getting at. And again, the term stumble is scandalizo, the same term that was used in our passage in Matthew 5. And ultimately, those who stumble, where will they go? Again, the lake of fire. Dear brothers and sisters, let us ask ourselves this question. Is Jesus therefore, therefore teaching here in this passage and also in Matthew 5 a works-based salvation? Is he saying, hey, if you don't allow yourself to be overcome by lust, therefore you won't stumble to hell, you have to earn it, you have to do it? No. But what he is pointing out is that those who truly believe, they will be those who obey. And if we are always characterized by those who are overcome by lust, the question is, do we really believe? That's the idea that I think is being conveyed here. And so, dear brothers and sisters, what we see in the New Testament then is that you and I are to be those who flee from immorality, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. In other words, you and I are to be those who take such effort in controlling our thought life that we don't put ourselves in the position in which we will be tempted in the first place. Uh, Paul says again, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from immorality, the immorality there, pornuo, is the term for sexual immorality. Uh, Think of, in your own life, different areas in which you may be tempted. The idea that we find in the scriptures is not that you enter into that arena, come right up to the temptation and do mortal hand-to-hand combat, but rather you flee. You don't put yourself in the position to be tempted in the first place. And so maybe you don't have the dinner alone with the secretary or whomever that you may be attracted outside of your spouse, whatever it may look like. Let the Spirit work in your life and point out the areas in which perhaps you need to change. I want you to think about a man in the Old Testament that fled from immorality. I'm thinking of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? He was one of the 12 sons of Israel, ends up being one of the 12 tribes. Recall in Genesis that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. God ends up using it to save the people of Israel from a famine. But I want you to remember that as Joseph goes into Egyptian captivity, remember he ends up being in command of a man named Potiphar's whole household. Potiphar was a very powerful man. And Joseph was given authority over the entire household. But you remember Potiphar's wife, she ends up being overcome by lust for Joseph. Joseph was a handsome man. And she does not control her thought life. She's overcome by lust. And she demands that Joseph would lie with her. What does he do? He flees. He fled. Now, I know you're thinking in your seat and you're right. Yes, well, yeah, he ends up being arrested, though. Potiphar puts him in jail. And so you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't he suffer some consequences even though he did the right thing? Well, yes, but God used it providentially to save Israel, didn't he? And also for Joseph's good. But you know what Joseph ultimately did? Is he fled because he wanted to honor God in no man. Brothers and sisters, who do you want to honor in your life? Yourself, the crowd, or God alone? Oh, yes, Joseph, let's just say he rotted the rest of his life in that jail. He still did the right thing. He was still living a life honoring to God. Let us be those who are not captured as David was or Potiphar's wife was. Let us be those who flee from immorality. Now, let me come to our final slide here. And one of the things I've been convinced of, and I'm so grateful for Bob DeWay teaching these things all these years, and he's been very instrumental, obviously, in my theology. But the more I study, I'm convinced that the way to overcome the fleeting pleasures of sin is to be convinced in your mind of the greatness of the returning king and his kingdom. If you and I will live for the king and his kingdom and have our minds focused on those things, we say, hey, I don't want to destroy that with the fleeting pleasures of sin here and now. 
And this is exactly one of the points that Paul drives us to in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Notice he says here, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, stop there for a moment. Remember Colossians 2, 20, if you've died with Christ, he said. Well, here he says, if you've been raised up with Christ, both are true for the believer. Positionally, you're dead with him to the demonic realm and to the world, but you're all also raised to the newness of life. That's what baptism symbolizes, by the way. That's why it's a symbol. So again, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. So stop there. Notice the idea of keep seeking, ongoing action. Keep seeking the things above. Don't keep seeking a woman outside of your spouse or a man outside of being your spouse if you're a woman. Don't dwell on those things, but rather dwell on what? The things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, the battle against sexual sin is a battle for our mind. If you and I will be like Abraham, remember Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the questions that comes to our minds is how did these patriarchs persevere through all of the hardships that they had? And in Hebrews 11 verse 10, it says regarding Abraham, the way he persevered is he was looking for a city who has foundations, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was living for the kingdom. And in fact, every saint in Hebrews 11, the way they persevered and stayed away from sin was living for the king in the kingdom. That's the way it has to be for us. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who fill our minds on things in the kingdom, not the fleeting pleasures of sin here and now. Now, one thing I want to do at the very end of this message is I want to give a case for Christianity, a a, a small abbreviated one to Those who may be listening out there perhaps are checking in and truth be told, you're not a believer and you've been overcome by sexual sin. I want to explain to you why you should repent and come to Jesus Christ. So let me give the case for Christianity. First of all, I want to begin by explaining that there must be a God. I want to talk about that very briefly. I want to prove the existence of God. And I've heard in the past when I do that, some people will say, well, Eric, don't you know that any God that you can prove isn't worth worshiping? which to me is a non sequitur. How come a God that you can't prove is worth worshiping, but the God that you can isn't? doesn't make any sense to me. So yes, we can prove the existence of God, and we can do it by starting with, if there ever was a time that there was nothing, there would be nothing now. Do you know why? Because nothing can't do something. That would be a violation of the law of non-contradiction. How can you have nothing, and at the same time, something that puts something else into existence. It's irrational. By the way, the universe also could not not exist and at the same time exist to put itself into existence. That's irrational. Now, if in fact there was a time that you have nothing, there would be nothing now, that means something must be eternal for there to be anything now. So the question is, is it the universe or is it a being outside of the universe? Well, we know from the second law of thermodynamics that it cannot be the universe. The second law of thermodynamics says that all energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state, meaning how can you have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy? If the universe was infinite ago, you would be out of energy by now. So the second law of thermodynamics says that the universe cannot be eternal. In fact, even Jastrow, Dr. Jastrow, who was the founder of NASA's Goddard Space Institute, had concluded the same. The universe is not eternal. And therefore, we know that there must be an eternal being outside of the universe. That's God. And we see, lo and behold, in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And then when you get to Exodus, or excuse me, Psalm 90, you see the eternality of God. You see it all over the place. God is eternal and the creation is not. But it's this God who created human beings in his image and the bad news revealed in the Bible is that we all have rebelled against him in thought, word, and deed. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what is the wages of the sin? So what? So we rebel against God. Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of the sin 
is death. And death is not just separation of body and soul, but one day separation from God forevermore in the lake of fire. That's exactly what Jesus was warning about today in Matthew chapter 5. I can't think of any worse news than that. You know, there's been a lot of bad news lately in our own country, but the worst news that anyone could ever consider was that you've rebelled against the Holy One of Israel and that forevermore you'll be thrown into a lake of fire. But that's precisely why the good news, the gospel, you know, gospel means good news. That's why it is good news. If you don't understand the bad news, the good news makes no sense. You see, the good news is brilliant because of the dark backdrop of the wrath of God. And the good news is that God, from the beginning of time, had planned that he would send forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity, would humble himself and become a man through a virgin birth so that he could live the perfect life that we could not, so that his righteousness could be credited to our account. But this Jesus didn't simply live the perfect life. He also died on a cross, a substitutionary and propitious death to remove our sin debt. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The proof that Jesus died for your sins completely taking upon himself the wrath of God to remove your sin debt was proven by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. Bob often has pointed out, Jesus, the only one in history who ever predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pulled it off. This Jesus is ascended into the heavens and he's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people. But wrath and judgment upon his enemies and those who transgress his boundaries. What must we do? Well, we have to repent. And a repent is a turning, an acquiescence to God in his terms and turning from idolatry, sin, self, and the world and turning to God in his terms, which is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone today. If you're maybe listening out there and you're not a believer, today is the day to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sins forgiven and be filled by the Holy Spirit so that you too will be able to live a life that is pleasing to God. Having a heart and mind not dedicated on the fleeting pleasures of sin, but on the coming king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the truth that you reveal in the scriptures, that you use them to keep your elect upon the narrow path of salvation, that we would not stumble. We also thank you, Lord, that you use your word to Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment by your spirit. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, in the weeks and months ahead that you would give us ample opportunity to proclaim this gospel so that others may be saved, that they would give you glory by submitting to your boundaries. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us by your spirit to submit to your boundaries, all for the sake of your great name, In glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.